You are listening to Slaves to the Algo with Suresh Shankar, a show about AI, big data, disruptive technology, and strategies for your business to stay ahead in the age of relevance. Brought to you by Crayon Data. Hello, my name is Suresh Shankar. I'm the founder and CEO of Crayon Data, an AI and big data startup headquartered in Singapore. And I am a podcaster. I host a show called Slaves to the Algo. And welcome to the show. We are now in season two. And I'm delighted to have with me as my guest today, a multifaceted man from California, but who's now in Miami, Eric Sue. Eric Sue is an entrepreneur. He is an influencer of the highest order. He is a data-driven digital marketing guru. And he is now the author of a book. Welcome to Slaves to the Algo, Eric. Thanks for having me, Suresh. It's good to see you. Good to see you too. I first met Eric in Hong Kong uh, way back in the dim and distant past when we used to be able to travel. And Eric and I keep promising that we will try and meet each other in in physical space soon enough. But till then, I guess this will have to do. Um, I'm going to basically try and give uh, Eric, maybe I'm going to ask you to start off with a short introduction to yourself and your journey. Because when I see you, I see three or four different avatars. I mean, you're an amazing entrepreneur. You've got a fantastic, uh, you know, podcast, a YouTube channel, and a, and a big influencer. You literally become one of the experts on data-driven digital marketing. You launched a new book, so many different avatars. So uh, I hope that, you know, we'll go through all of them today, but how would you describe yourself? I'm a teacher. Nice and simple. And uh, why did you choose that? I mean, that's such a compelling insight. Yeah. So I think if you're, I've asked myself this question in the past, if you're to take away everything I have right now, what would I be at my essence? And I just love learning and I love teaching because it articulates my learning. So um, that's why, you know, pre-COVID I would teach at local colleges in Los Angeles, I teach at USC, I would teach at Pepperdine, um, a lot of stuff I would do, you know, for free online. And just because I enjoy it and I, I enjoy giving back. Um, and partly it's selfish too, because when I see someone's eyes light up, when I see that there's a light bulb moment, I get a lot of joy from that. And it does feel like, a, you know, someone has said in the past, it feels like a drug and it certainly does. So, And that's nice. And, you know, it's nice that you talk about drugs because I'll go to the new drugs in some way. And, 100%. Uh, you become a person, and you become a person who is actually taken teaching, which you call your passion, and you've kind of brought it into the digital world in, multi- in multiple different ways. So, let me start first, perhaps, Eric, with your, um, with the entrepreneur in you and your, the person that actually became, uh, you know, you went out and bought single grain for $2. And I know you've told this story before, but our listeners would love to hear it. What made you go out and do something like that? You know, just buy a company that's failing with a lot of debt. Yeah, I mean, it, it, looking back on it, it was a fairly reckless move. And I, I don't think I would have repeated it, um, but I don't have any regrets. So just the, the story behind it was I was previously, I was about 26 years old. I was leading marketing at a, at a online education startup. And um, we were able to turn the company around because we had a great product, a great team. We just didn't have the right marketing. So um, because the CEO threatened to fire me a month into the job, if I didn't hit numbers, um, I bet the entire company, because I have a background in gambling poker, I said, okay, all in. Let's put the whole company on YouTube ads and it worked out. We went from acquiring 200 users a month to 3,500 to 5,500 to 6,500, raised our series B and the company was saved. Um, and so my podcast co-host, uh, Neil for marketing school, he saw what I did and he was like, hey, 
why don't you come help save this failing agency? And at first I had no interest in it. I looked at it. I was like, this is a failing company. I'm not interested in a service business. Um, I've worked in agencies in the past. I've historically dislike agencies. Um, but then I reframed my mindset. I was like, Oh wait, hold on a second. If, if I can, fly this plane and change the engine while it's going down, I think I can do anything. Um, so, you know, I decided to sign up. I, I came in as a number two. There are four other partners in the company. Fast forward six months, nothing's working out. The four partners want out. Neil pulls me aside and he's like, hey, as a friend, there's no brand equity here. There's nothing you should get out. And so I said, hey, at 27 years old, this is my first M&A deal. I'm air quoting right now for those of you that can't see the video, right? M&A, right? What do I know about M&A at 27? And so I said, hey, okay, Neil, $1 for 10% of your shares, $1 for another partner's shares, and then the rest was seller finance paid through the profits of the company. And I put in a contingency. If the company failed, I would owe nothing. Um, so the way I looked at it was to answer your question now, getting finally to, your, to the, with the answer, um, it was an asymmetric bet, meaning that my upside was unlimited and my downside would be capped. It would be basically be an MBA. I wouldn't really lose much. I just lose the time investment. And if I failed, it would, I would probably still be 28 or 29 years old. I can still go get an amazing job. Um, and so that's what it was. And um, yeah, a year into it, I made it go from bad to worse. We dropped all the way down to one employee and my outside accounting firm called me and said, Hey, it might be time to shut it down. And so it got to that point. So. So that's an interesting thing that you just said. you rescued your company that you're working in you go and do this uh, i mean this podcast is called slaves to the algo were you a slave to your feelings or a master of the data because you also described unlimited upside no downside so which one was this in this case when you went in data i think it was it was more so on data because um you know when I used to play a lot of poker in college, I understood the odds a lot more. Okay, if I have a flush draw multi-way pot, I, I actually have an edge, right? So I know what my numbers are. In this scenario, if the upside's unlimited and my downside's very capped, it's heads, I win a lot. Tails, I, I think I still win, so. That's an interesting uh, way to do it. And then, you know, you've actually built that company out into a digital marketing powerhouse agency. And, you know, you also mentioned another thing, you don't like services business. So could you, how did you nurture it? How did you grow the company? Could you walk us through a little bit of that journey? Yeah. So, you know, going back to the asymmetric upside, service businesses are very good cash flow businesses. And you can you can continue to scale it if you want, but you're going to end up playing a, a holding company game, which is what the big agencies in the world do. They gobble up other agencies and they just keep doing that and they sell to a bigger holding company. That's the game you play. So for me, I was like, okay. Well, if I make it work and I generate great cash flows from it, I'm going to use those cash flows and go find more durable or more exponential sources of revenue. So my background's in SaaS. And so um, either I'm going to go invest in, in, in other kind of tech businesses or, you know, build our own stuff. Right. Um, and so, you know, th that was kind of the long-term bet, but to turn things around, just to back up a second, um, let me tell you how I screwed it up first. So I read a book um, called Let My People Go Surfing from the Patagonia co-founder. Great title. I took the book a little too literally. Let my people go surfing. Nobody wants to be micromanaged. Da, 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 da. I was like, yeah, yeah, makes sense. So I stopped showing up to the office. And, wow. and from there, you know, things went from bad to worse. I had no, no, no communication, no culture, no sense of anything. I was just like, just let it happen right? As if it's the company's supposed to automatically run itself. Um, so that's what happened. And after that, I really learned my lesson on, okay, if we're going to build it, we have to build intentionally. All the things people used to tell me that I used to think was baloney, uh, you talk core values, you know, culture, that type of stuff. That actually, if you think about it, that is an algorithm 
that runs your company. If this happens, then this, if this happens, then this, right? If they don't behave, if they don't follow our core values, then we fire them, right? And so after that, I was like, okay, we got very systematic. You just described culture as an algorithm. And could you just delve a little bit deeper into that because it's so fascinating. All as entrepreneurs, especially in the tech world, talk about values and culture being the single most important thing. But yeah. you described it as an algorithm. So I'd just love to go a little bit deeper into that thought. Yeah, I'll be the first to say I'm not an algo expert, but I mean, at the end of the day, I was just mentioning if this, then that, right? Life is really just a lot of if this, then that statements. And I think the culture is really, you can call it the plumbing of your company. I like to think of it as the programming of the company because of programming, you're, you're constantly adding new lines of code to it. You're constantly making adjustments. You're deleting code. What do you want to think about, you know, CRISPR, like gene editing and all that, you're removing things. You're just doing that the whole time. When you add people, you add new code to it, your culture changes a little bit. And so you're constantly adjusting it over time. And people like to think, oh my God, we're not computers. We're not, uh, you know, this is a little crude to say, but I would just say we're probably primitive version of, of, of computers, primitive versions of, of algos, um, whether we like it or not. Right. So we should, we, you know, I'm just going to leave that right there for a moment, but um, that's how I think about it. That's, um, and that's an absolutely lovely. And I can see um, a little bit about when I asked you, what is your common theme when you said teacher, but I'll come to that in the end. I'm just going to move on to the the second aspect, the facet of what I see, because to me, um, uh, this is such a, an interesting part of you and, you know, and your, uh, and your co-host, Neil, who you do some shows with. This is the idea of Eric as the influencer. You built an incredible podcast. You built an incredible YouTube channel. You've um, you know, driven up the traffic on that. You've, how did you do this? And how do you actually use data? How have you used your own feelings about the audience to actually become this really big influencer in the world of digital marketing? Well, first, I appreciate that, Suresh. I think, you know, at the end of the day, um, I, I still feel like I'm very much getting started. And I think uh, one thing I, I want to caveat, I think if anybody feels like they've ever become an influencer or an expert, that's when you start, I think that's when things start to fall apart because people get a, get complacent. Um, and so what I would say is I'm when I first to took over- You're not, maybe. Yeah, you're completely right. Um, so when I when I took over Single Grain, our blog was getting about three thousand visits a month, which is not that much. Um, over the years, you know, now we're at about three hundred fifty thousand, which is decent for a marketing blog because it's a very competitive niche in the world of. Um, from an SEO perspective, um, but we've also taken those insights and we built other blogs. I have another blog that gets four million visits a month um, using the same playbook, and so. You know, when you think about the best investors in the world, let's let's think about Warren Buffett for a second. Okay, he's worth $85 billion. $84 billion of that didn't come until after his 65th birthday. And fifty when he was 58, that's when he got to his first billion. And so when you think about the time it takes to become quote unquote, you know, successful, get to where you want to get to, um, whether it's in marketing, whether it's in business, it just takes a long time. And so what I found, let's use uh, my podcast as an example, example number two. After the first year, when I was spending six hours on it every week, I was only getting nine downloads a day, right? So 270 a month. After the second year doing the same thing, I was only getting 900 downloads a month. But if I didn't keep understanding that, hey, let's not focus on the downloads, let's focus on the learnings, let's focus on the relationships that I'm building, um, we wouldn't be at where we're at right now, which is about 1.6, 1.7 million downloads a month. So I'm just saying, typically with business or any type of audience, it takes two to three years to get something going. And it's just a compounding effect after that. So um, I think, you know, what I learned from that is, you know, if we think about go back to algorithms for a second, algorithms don't get impatient. Algorithms, just, they just keep going. They keep compounding over time, right? Um, so 
you know, that's what it is. A machine, sorry, not algorithms, but machines just keep on going and going. They don't have emotion tied to it. Um, so you try to take those investing, that investing mindset to business and also to um, just building audiences. And it's, it's a recipe for success, I think. So that's a lovely thought and hold that, but I'm going to go back to something that you said earlier. You know, you said that it takes time and it's a, you know, when you got me on your podcast, we covered that. I said it takes eight to nine years at least to build a good business. And you said it takes time. Did, when you started your podcast, when you started your channels, did you know that it takes time or is that something you discovered along the way? Did you keep trying and doing things till it, till it got big? Or did you always know it's going to be a 10-year uh, journey or a five-year journey to get to that? I didn't. Um, what I would say is I, it was very painful when I was focused on the wrong metric. I was focused on the wrong KPI. So if this is why most people give up too easily because there's like, you know, three months into, oh my God, I'm not getting any downloads. I'm not getting any views. And at the end of the day, I think what I want to tell those people is stop being so selfish, right? Stop thinking about yourself so much um, because that's what I did. And it was incredibly painful. But when I reframed my mindset to, to my point earlier, thinking, oh my God, I'm actually building relationships with amazing people like Suresh. I'm having amazing conversations. I can ask selfish questions because I was trying to save single grain at the time. And um, a lot of these relationships became my really close friends and it led to other things down the road. And so I should be optimizing for that because that's infinitely more valuable. Because even like, when I get build a lot of downloads at the end of the day, what's the most important thing? It all leads back to relationships. Um, and so I didn't learn about the compounding effect till later because I started to see that with you know multiple audiences. Um, but yeah, that's what happened. I just, I think it's just important to rethink what's actually important and then focus on that metric instead of what everyone else is focusing on. Because if you focus on what everyone else is focusing on, you're going to get the same results that everyone else gets. And that's, that's, that, that's really fascinating. I'm going to go to that second thing because that's an interesting thing. You said machines are patient and algorithms are patient. And this is something that a lot of people sometimes don't really get. They just expect that hey, if you're using AI or analytics or whatever it is that you put something in and you're going to get some instantaneous results. And um, I like the way you said they're patient and they keep plodding away. And um, perhaps in the context of your blog and your podcast, could you share us a few learnings of how that whole patience thing played out? I mean, how did you, you know, could you share some insights in that? Yeah. So with the, the blog, um, initially when I first took over the company, Single Grain, um, we, again, only 3,000 visits a month, but we didn't have a good publishing schedule. So we would publish maybe, you know, once a month or it was very sporadic. So when I first took over, I was like, okay, here's what we're going to do. We're going to increase our publishing frequency to maybe about three blog posts a month. We're going to make all our posts long form before they were maybe, you know, 300 words or so. So this is a, a while back, you know, the new trend was to make, you know, most things long form, right? You can crawl more content that way for the, for the algorithm, Google, right? Um, and the other thing we did was we started to build relationships with other blogs. So, you know, HubSpot or, you know, Entrepreneur Magazine, these other, um, you know, big websites, I'm just naming the big ones because people know them. Um, but then we started doing guest posting. So, um, we started getting more authority coming to our website and I don't want to get too much in the weeds here. I, I will just say this, when it comes to SEO, um, think about Google's algorithm, there's two things that matter quite a bit. It's the content and the links, right? So our quality of the content got a lot better. Our frequency increased, right? If you think, think about our algorithm, um, which is just, you know, doing that and also building more links and our link authority our domain authority started to get stronger and stronger and our output got bigger and bigger. So we started to compound. Um, we started to reap the benefits of that. And by the way, it wasn't immediate. It went from 3000, maybe to 10,000 in the next year. And then maybe it jumped to 50,000 the next year. Right. And then to, you know, to, maybe it took another year and a half to jump to a hundred thousand and then 150, 200. Now it's at 350. So. 
that's lovely. So I'm taking away a couple of really important learnings, and I think uh, even from our uh, for our listeners out here, one is that the idea that machines are patient and they keep plugging away, and second is the compounding effect once it starts to roll in. You're pretty much done with the stuff, whether you're Warren Buffett or Eric Thieu. So Warren Buffett <laughs> and Eric Thieu in the same sentence. There you go, Eric. Uh, <laughs> Not quite yet, but thank and, you. Uh, but 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 I have a but I have a further question on this whole thing. Do you guys actually sit? I mean, you know, when you look at the growth of the blog. Um, you know, everybody talks about people who become viral sensations, influencers overnight, and you know, people get millions of users and all of that. Uh, my question to you is, as a person running a blog, you, Neil, people like you, do you guys actually sit and say, I'm going to look at the data, I'm going to, while the machine is patient, do you actually look at the data and try and do it, or you let it become something that's organic by just influencing it, the right content and doing a few things and, and letting the machine run? A good content person. How much of it is just something that happens? Well, so we try to be very conscious by looking at the data. So Neil and I used to look at our analytics quite a bit, not so much anymore. Now we have people that, um, you know, experienced content marketers or SEOs that look at it. But yeah, looking at Search Console, looking at what's trending in the right way, um, you know, looking at, you know, different tools that show us, you know, uh, by the way, what's going on with the, the Google algorithm? Do we need to be worried about anything, right? That's not something we look at too much, but a lot of SEOs do. Um, I would say, you know, it's, it's actually better. It's just the problem is Neil and I are both trained as SEOs. I think it's it's better net net to just focus on, hey, what content are people most interested in right now and produce that and just get the SEO basics right. And then you're going to grow your traffic a lot more. Because when I think about the survival blog that we have um, that gets four to five million visits a month, we just write really good content and we don't try to build links or anything like that. We know that the search engine, we're feeding the algorithm. We know the algorithm needs more content like this because there's not a lot of content like that. When you can do that, you actually don't need to focus so much on links. Google's going to eat it all up, right? Um, and so, but for that blog, the, the directive to the team is, hey, just write, let's just write whatever is most interesting, whatever's trending. And this is why you see a lot of new sites, they just take off and they generate tons and tons of traffic, right? But the problem for Neil and I is we're in the world of, so that's algorithm when it's not super competitive competitive uh, or trending topics, things like that. But in the world Neil and I are in, it's super competitive, right? So he, Neil might get millions of visits a month. I get a couple hundred thousand, but even a couple hundred thousand is considered really good in, in this niche. So you have to, you know, put on different hats when you're in different niches and think about how competitive they are. And so in that respect, we are kind of looking at, Hey, what does the data tell us? Right. But net net for most people, you probably want to focus on just, Hey, what's going to create the best experience. What are people interested in? That's uh, great. And I'm taking away at least three things. First is that focus on the content in your story and, and, and the relationships you're building. The machine is more patient than you are. Let the machine do its work and wait for the effect of compounding to kick in. Eric, uh, it's been so fascinating uh, learning about you, the entrepreneur, you, the influencer, and the blogger. Uh, but, um, and I think there's some, one thing I want to kind of touch on before I go to the data-driven digital guru that you are, which is, the fact that, you know, the numbers that you talked about just before the break, we talked about 200,000 visits a month. I mean, these numbers seem small to a lot of people, but in the B2B world, the world that you and I live in, it's a lot. People don't get that far. So is that, is that something that differentiates the world of B2B influence versus the, you know, the traditional way in which you look at B2C influence where you say people have millions of users and you're posting all kinds of random Instagram photographs? So is there a fundamental difference between these two worlds? 
Yeah, I think, you know, the, the word you always hear from other VCs is TAM, right? The total addressable market. And I think when we think about, you know, the world of B2B, it's a lot smaller than the, the world of B2C, which is a lot broader as well. Um, especially when we think about B2B SaaS, it gets even smaller. So it's a very small world. Like the conference we met at SaaS Talk, there's only one yep. other big conference I know of. It's Saster, right? That are specifically, and sure, I'm sure there's some other ones, the business of software and all that, but it's a very small world and everyone kind of knows each other. Um, and so, when we think about, um, so B2B is one subset, but then if you think about a lot of people know me for SEO for, for, for better or worse. Um, so that's an even smaller subset. So whenever people, whenever people think about me, the algorithm in their mind, it's convenient to think of, to think of me as, Oh, it's Eric, the SEO. So that's what they all call me. Right. Um, I'm not saying I like it or dislike it, but that's, that's just what it is. And so, um, I think, that's why like the numbers aren't huge, but I would take our 350,000 visits over like 10 million visits from like a news website because it's a lot of, the, the traffic is um, less valuable, so to speak, because they don't convert, they're not gonna buy high dollar things as much. That's why the, the CPCs are cost per clicks are lower. So um, again, going back to algorithms, that's how it works. So let me come to the, and you mentioned Eric, the SEO, I mean, I like to think of you in a slightly broader way as Eric, the digital guru. And um, just a couple of quick questions about the industry itself, right? I mean, everybody's talking digital marketing 10, 15 years ago and said, no, 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 this will never take off. It's gone from zero about 20 years ago of marketing spends to probably what about 50% of all marketing spends. So when you look at this world about digital marketing and, and all its facets, what are the pillars that you think drive success if you want to build a brand and if you want to build, a, whether you're a consumer brand or whether you're a B2B brand, what drives success in this world? Uh, today, what are some three or four big lessons that you can give people listening in? Yeah, I think if you're trying to build a brand for the long term, it, if you don't have, uh, well, let's say you have resources. Well, the good the good news is you can go buy the attention, right? So if I'm a, you know, I'm an SAP or something, maybe I'll say, hey, you know what? Um, I I want to get in this SEO game. Okay, I'm just gonna go look for a bunch of websites and buy up the attention, right? So you can buy, you can acquire attention. You can buy Facebook groups. You can buy, uh, you can buy different, you know, SaaS products. You can buy different websites too, and you can acquire that traffic. Um, so that that's one thing. Because I think of when I think about M and A, I think about it from the perspective of marketing as well. How can I bolster my marketing with this acquisition? Um, so you can do that if you have resources. But if not, what I would say is if you don't have any resources right now, if you're B two B. I'll be thinking about LinkedIn organic reach because it's so strong. If you're B2C, you have even more options. You have YouTube shorts, you have Instagram reels, you have TikToks, right? You have Snapchat spotlights. Um, the, you you want to really leverage organic as much as you can because what ends up happening, here's the algorithm for these social platforms. They give you as much organic reach as possible and then you start to monetize it with, with ads, right? And then they start to throttle your organic reach. And so all the hard work you put in, it goes, goes to nothing, right? So you have to just keep moving on to the next platform um, and then have whatever team kind of managing, you know, the work that you've done in the past. Um, Clubhouse is another perfect example. Uh, tomorrow I'm doing a, last week I did a chat with, with Kevin O'Leary from Shark Tank. Tomorrow I'm doing one mm -hmm. with another billionaire, right? So to be able to build those B2B relationships with people and uh, interact with people where I can collaborate with them, that's infinitely valuable, right? So you have a lot of different options, Twitter spaces, right? So um, I just think, again, the lesson here is taking advantage of organic. The first one is, hey, if you have resources, maybe there's an M&A type of play that you can do. Um, and so there's those, those two. And the third thing I would say is we talked about compounding. I think, again, it's, it's you know, if, if you're a company like Suresh, for example, let's use you, um, 
you are the star of the podcast. If you had outsourced this to somebody else, what if they quit? Right. So there's a consistency game to this too. Um, because if, if let's say you're HubSpot and you hire someone to, to do the podcast for you, if they quit, you're screwed. The consistency factor is gone. Cause if you try to come take it over, take over later, um, a year or two into it, you know, they've built a relationship with that person. You actually built that person's brand for better or worse. Right. And so I think, uh, consistency across the board, again, that's, the, I think it's one of the main reasons why people end up quote unquote failing. Yep. Yeah, and, and, and that's, uh, you know, you also talked very interesting about growing organically and how the platform sort of throttled the work that you've done. One of the big issues that you read about in the world today is the outsized impact of um, algorithms, um, some of which you can control and you can kind of manage, and others that are completely out of your control, like the Facebook and the Google algorithms, right? So what's your take on um, the effect of um, how much people are putting themselves at the mercy of the algorithm? How much are we slaves to the algorithm in letting it drive this new world that we are in? And I'm not asking you for the philosophical take about whether Google or Facebook is right. I'm just asking for the more practical, um, are we, you know, how do we become masters of this? How much are we completely, or oh, we can't do much about it. We got to go with the flow there. Yeah. I mean, I haven't thought too much about this, but what I would say is, you know, when I listen to the conversations on Clubhouse where people are, you know, sometimes I'll join rooms where people are giving marketing advice. You got to do this for the TikTok. You got to do this for the YouTube short. You got to do this for the algorithm. You got to do this. So it just sounds like they are slaves to the algorithm, right? Um, a lot of the work that we do, it's like, oh, you got to publish at least one time a day, right? That type of stuff, or else you're not going to, they're going to throttle your social, they're going to shadow ban you, like that type of stuff. And so, you know, in the grand scheme of things, like how much does this really matter, right? So maybe it does matter a lot for your business, who knows, right? But what I would say is maybe it's time to start diversifying from the algorithms because once you start to build this audience, can you quickly drive them to your email list so you can own that? Can you drive them to an SMS list where you you, you kind of own that, right? Um, what other assets can you make where like you own, maybe you have a community, maybe you have an event, right? I think community is, is a very important moat, a moat that people don't think about as much. If you can do, you know, a type of conference where you're connecting a bunch of people, right? And then you have people talking with each other online, people will come back for the community. That's a moat. Your email list is a moat. Like I mentioned, your SMS list is a moat. So not, you know, the, the advertising costs for Facebook, Google, that's going to continue to rise and get bigger and bigger and bigger. Can you build a tool, right? That a lot of people are going to come back and use over and over. I think we need to start thinking about, hey, like, how can we start to disconnect from these big platforms in case something, if they get regulated or broken up, so... And um, that's that's kind of really interesting because I think that's clearly the way the at least the governments of the world seem to be going. But uh, coming back to the world that we can control, which is really the thing that we get up and do every day as professionals, right? Could you give our listeners uh, three big things to take away about the future of where you see digital marketing going and possibly a couple of changes that as professionals, they need to focus on things that they maybe have to do completely differently in this new era of data, digital-driven marketing? Yeah. I mean, one thing I'll say is I don't think social audio is going anywhere. I think, you know, for Clubhouse, you know, Twitter has their own competitor now. Facebook is already copying them. So I don't know if Clubhouse is going to win long term, but I do know that that format is here to stay. There's something very special about that format. So, you know, right now, like I, I'm traveling right now, I have this Roadcaster Pro next to me in about an hour, we're going to do a Clubhouse for, for my book launch, right? And I, I'm on my mic right here. So I think audio is going to continue to get more and more important. Um, I do think, you know, there's a reason why I'm doing this book. People are like, why are you doing a book? Nobody reads books anymore. But if I can build a community around that, and there's 3 billion people in the world that have played games, talking about total addressable market, 
what am I going to be able to do with that? And so that's something I've actually never talked about. I've done 107 podcasts now for this book tour. Um, and, and I've never actually mentioned that, right? But to be able to, to harness the power of that and to be able to help people at scale like that, that that's pretty powerful. Um, and so that's a long-term play, right? We want to talk about long-term and compounding. That's this book right here. Um, not trying to, oh, make money quickly, like, you know, New York Times bestsellers, right? Like that's all, I don't, I don't want to pay 500 grand for that. So, so anyway, there's that. I think Does building communities. Get on the New York Times bestseller. I'll tell you on this podcast right now. Five hundred grand guaranteed. You'll get a New York Times bestseller. Okay, they're gonna hate me for this. Forty-five grand. Um, there's there's someone that can get you onto you know Wall Street Journal's bestseller. They have like their own system or whatever, right? So there's like games within games. Like this is why I think this whole leveling up thing. The, the whole life is just a puzzle, or if you want to call it an algorithm, you can call it that too. There's just different dynamics that you can insert to play things the right way. And, and this is the perfect time to segue into the new book. And, you know, I completely agree with you. Books are never going to go out of fashion. Just look behind me. I mean, the best way I can detach, I mean, you know, this whole digital thing is that even all that reading, you just kind of go start going straight into it and you go into that rabbit hole and never come out. So when I really want to disconnect, I just pick up a book because it's analog. So I love this thing. And I think uh, it's, a, it's a great thought. You know, I mean, I love the title. I mean, how to master the game of life. So tell us a little bit more about the book and what you talk about in the book and, um, and you know, basically give us the synopsis of how to master the game of life. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm just still... Just give me one second. Just give me one second. Sorry, there's some sunlight. Too much sun. Yeah, I was like, the sun's yeah, hitting too much you. Sun. <laughs> <laughs> so let me go back. So it's a, it's a fascinating thing. You've written this book. It's about how to master the game of life. So tell us how to master the game of life. I mean, I'll be the first to say I mean, that I'm buy still. The book. We'll buy the book. We'll buy the book. We'll make you a billionaire. <laughs> I appreciate that, but I, 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 like, I'll be the first to say I feel like I'm just getting started right now, and I feel like I'm still going along the journey, right? So it's not like, oh, this this guy thinks he's mastered the game of life. I just think this is what's working for me so far. And um, you know, by the way, I also want to say that I was the ultimate failure growing up because I almost got. I almost didn't graduate high school because I didn't want to go to this one required class my senior year. Um, I almost got kicked out of college because I was playing too much World of Warcraft and poker. Um, so I had six withdrawals my first year and one F. <laughs> and uh, I almost got, um, well, I didn't almost, I got fired from two jobs. One was because I was trying to start a, a side business. So that was kind of stupid to me. Um, the other one was because I, this was in college, I was a, uh, it was raining and I didn't feel like going to work. So that's a bad reason. Probably should have been fired, but I was 20 years old. So um, anyway, my point of saying all this is that I was the one thing I excelled at from ages eight to 22 was gaming. And I got in big fights with my parents all the time. They would take away my keyboard. They would take away my mouse. Um, and they never bothered to understand all the time and effort I was putting into games um, while I was doing that. And so what ended up happening was I learned a lot about resilience. I learned about teamwork. I learned about communication. Um, actually, all of that translates into, into real life. So to keep it short, um, I, I, I do truly believe that, you know, if you think about life or business in general, it's just a series of puzzles. It's, it's literally a game. Like if I'm talking to Suresh right now, we're building this relationship, right? Um, or if I'm looking to buy, right now I'm looking at a deal to, to buy a small agency, they're doing 7 million a year in, in top line revenue. I'm like, okay, how can I make it where I can make the terms very uh, favorable, make it a good outcome for them, but also make it very favorable to us and make it where I can get this deal for free, right? So there's games within games of, of everything. And to me, life is just about getting 
1% better every single day, right? Leveling up every single day, 1%. And um, the whole thing is about, you know, going around life and collecting power-ups, playing the game long-term with no end in sight, right? And then, you know, when you die, you die happy, but you just know that you enjoyed the journey the whole time. And that's what mastering the game of life is. I think that's such a lovely summary. I mean, and uh, I've been waiting to get my uh, get get my hands in the book. I went to a bookstore out here. I'm trying to avoid only going and buying things digitally. But that's just a lovely way to encapsulate this stuff, right? You're improving one percent um, every day of your life, and you know, I like the leveling up in terms of the way we talk. That's what we all used to do when we play those games. But it seems to me, Eric, when you talk about this stuff now, I'm getting a picture of your whole life. I mean. You actually, to me, strike me as one of those early users of data and algorithm poker, gaming, all of this stuff seems to have led you to, I think, the way you're looking at it. Would that be a fair comment? I mean, all the ways you it's... started and went through this is now... You know, I don't know if you know this coach. Um, so my, my coach, his name's Jerry Colonna, and he works with mostly, you know, SaaS, SaaS CEOs or software CEOs. And then, you know, when, we, when he coaches me, we talk about, I'm like, hey, like, I just need you to ask me questions so I can unwire how I'm programmed. So I use the word programmed, right? So I think from ages zero to 18 or so, like everything, like how we do things is how we're programmed, all the experiences we go through. So to answer your question, I think so. I've actually never thought of it that way, though. And I'm going to, kind of um, just move a little bit. I mean, uh, to all the, uh, Eric, could you, your book is right behind you. I think Eric's, uh, I've kind of seen some advanced copies of the book. I've discussed this with him. The book is leveling up, how to master the game of life. And there's some fantastic uh, and simple learnings of how I think each of us can improve ourselves every single day. Uh, with the, I mean, I would almost say it's a relentless attitude to self-improvement, but done in a fun way. It's not the hard work that we all sometimes associate with learning and growing. So uh, do get your, uh, do get hold of the book and um, do subscribe to Eric's podcast and YouTube channels. Leveling Up is a fantastic podcast. Uh, Eric, I think, you know, I could carry on talking to you for hours and I'm really looking forward to the day when um, we can meet in physical space, probably sit on the beach and talk for a few days probably. But I have a couple of questions to close us off with. Yeah. Uh, one of the things that's happening, and I think um, this is something that Harvard Business Review and uh, wrote an article on a couple of years ago saying that this is now the age of relevance, that the old ways in which people were marketers were working, loyalty, relationship, all of that doesn't work. And it's all about staying relevant. Uh, there's also a fantastic uh, bunch of things about the attention economy when there is like, you know, when, when, when we are constantly being asked to pay attention to so many things, the people who get attention are the ones who win. And obviously the people who, to get attention, you have to stay relevant with that. What's your take on how in this world of completely exploding content, there's like multiple channels, multiple pieces of content. How do brands stay relevant? How does a B2B brand stay relevant uh, in this new age? Yeah, I think it's a, it's, it's not stressing over trying to hit every single channel. I think it's, when you think about relevance, I mean, you know, there's two things, two things that pop to mind when I think about getting attention. A, you can do some crazy TikTok video where you're jumping off a building or something, and I don't know, flying with a squirrel suit or something. Um, but the other one that I think most of us can do is just be useful, right? So even if you know nothing right now, uh, learning in public, that's largely how we grew you know, we saved single grain and grew it, you know, grew all these things tied to it. Now this like octopus of things together. Right. Um, 
But if we weren't constantly trying to learn in public and be helpful in general, we wouldn't have been able to do that. So what I think is interesting, a trend I think is interesting, you just saw HubSpot buy the hustle reportedly for $27 million. And um, I think you're going to start to see more of these big companies you know, making media acquisitions because there's a lot of attention there and they can kind of bolt on, um, you know, whatever offerings that they have. And so, but guess what? The hustle is very useful. Um, it's, you know, I, I enjoy, I love the podcast that they do my first million. They talk about business trends. So I just love it. So I keep going back to it because I find the most utility by reading or listening or watching their stuff. Um, so I think in the B2B world, that's what it is. It's not like, Hey, come check out my case study or check out this amazing, you know, Oh, look at these announcements about like, I never read that stuff. Right. And I think, um, I'm not saying I'm the end all be all, but I think again, what's worked for, um, if you look at Neil or you look at myself or you look at other, even HubSpot as an example, it's just, they've continually been useful over the, over time. And um, the, I, I think it's, it's very simple, but it's not easy. Yeah, absolutely. And I love the way that you just said staying relevant is ultimately, especially in the B2B world, B2B world about being useful to your, to your listeners, to your clients and to your prospects. Uh, Eric, uh, I think, you know, I could carry on, like I said, for a while. I have a personal question for you and I have a comment to make to my viewers. First, the comment. Uh, I completely understand why Eric calls himself a teacher. I saw four sides of Eric, but I think when he used that word, I'm a teacher and I look at all the things that he had right from his life journey from being, uh, you know, a person who was into gaming and poker and then, you know, uh, rescuing his company to becoming an entrepreneur to becoming an influencer and a podcaster to writing a book to become a digital guru i think what he brings out and i'm going to use a different word to describe you eric i think you are a learner teacher because to me teaching and learning are literally two sides of that same coin and i think that by learning and by broadcasting that i think you brought probably a lot of insights to a lot of people in the world uh, but i have to ask you this question in the game of life which level are you at now and how many more what's your next three levels that you are trying to conquer yeah i appreciate it um you know at the end of the book there's a concept called the wealth ladder written by uh it's created by this the ceo of convert kit nathan berry and um you know i don't i'm not going to talk about that one but it's basically you know go from you go from going to school all the way up to becoming an investor or you know you can run a platforms business or something like that um I think, look, at, so at my age right now, you know, I, I'm 34 years old. I do feel like I'm very much getting started. Um, I do have, you know, all the assets in place, right? The audiences will continue to compound. The businesses will continue to compound. And I have a very buy and hold type of approach. And I just want to continue to, you know, buy other, you know, marketing related businesses and plug it into my audience. And I just continue to build audience. So I don't, I don't have an end in sight. Um, I think I've largely acquired the assets that I need to do what I need to do long-term. And now I'm just going to keep playing until I die. And my goal, if you were to ask me long-term, um, I've just really stuck to this book that I read when I was about 24, 25 years old, The Billionaire Who Wasn't, uh, about Chuck Feeney. And this guy found out of duty-free stores, gave away $8 billion. So, you know, when I was when I was 24, I was like, okay, if I give away $80 million, you know, I'll be happy. So 1%. And then I got a little older. I was like, oh, you know, maybe we'll do like 10%, 800 million. And I got a little older and I was like, why not just go for the 8 billion? And then if whatever I, I land on, I land on. And, and so that's what I'm going to do. And um, we'll see what happens. That is such a lovely thought. And I think um, it's uh, something uh, that all of us should take away, which is that, you know, you just started. So here's my answer to you, Eric. I'm 57 and I sometimes feel like I've just started. So you got a long way to go, brother. Thank yeah. you very much for being on the show, uh, Eric. And lovely to hear your thoughts on leveling up, on 
where digital marketing is headed on how to become an influencer and, and, and how to be a great entrepreneur when you don't know what that step is going to lead you into. Uh, thank you very much for being on Slaves to the Algo. Appreciate you having me. If you enjoyed this week's episode of Slaves to the Algo, please rate, share, and subscribe. Visit crayondata.com to find out more. See you next time.